Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Mishimash were in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines and was in Gibeah. When the Philistines heard of him, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all of Israel heard it. Saul said that Saul attacked the garrison of the Philistines. Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. The people were called together to Saul to kill them. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. The people of sand, which is on the seashore, and the multitude. They came up and camped in missionaries to the east of Beth Haven. Now when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, they were distressed, and the people hid in the caves and thickets and rocks and holes and pits. Some of the Hebrews crossed over to Jordan, to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. Samuel did not come to Gabriel, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering, a peace offering is here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him. So, we've got this difficult situation. Now, verse 1 is difficult to understand what it means. Whether it means he just reigned two years, whether it means God only considered him to be king for two years, it's a little bit hard to know. But they're very oppressed by the Philistines. They don't have much, uh, um, that much force, much strength. They, Saul calls all the people together to try to fight against him, but... But they've got all these chariots and horsemen, the Philistines do. And the Israelites are scared and they're hiding in the caves and the thickets and wherever they can. And Saul is waiting for Samuel to come to bless the sacrifice. Remember back in chapter 10 and verse 8. Samuel had already told Saul, whenever he was first anointing him to be king, that there'd be a time he'd go to Gilgal he needed to wait seven days for Samuel to come to sacrifice. And Samuel's not coming, and he's not coming, and he's not coming. And what's happening? People are leaving and hiding. His army is uh, uh, melting away. They're all afraid and, and going AWOL. The Philistine threat is ever more imminent. And so what does Saul do? It goes ahead and makes the offer. You know, he just didn't want to not offer to God before he went into battle. I mean, Samuel, it's the seventh day already, and Samuel's not there. And so he goes ahead and offers the offer. What happened as soon as Saul got done? You know, the Lord's prophets had this terrible habit of coming right at the time you don't want them to. <laughs> There's a lot of examples of that. And that's exactly what happens here. Now Samuel arrives. Comments and questions. Justin. Just with verse 1 there, mine says uh, 42 years, and then it references Acts where it says he ran for 10 years. Yeah, it's a, it, textually, we're really hard pressed to figure out what that verse means. So I don't have a good statement about that. Well, what's Samuel going to say? Someone who want to read 11 to 14. Samuel said, 
what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered in mishmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered for an offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. Verse 11. What did Samuel say? What have you done? Now I realize that we have a condensed version. I don't know what all went on. But all we know that went on is what's recorded. What do you think about Samuel saying this so abruptly? You know, what would we have done? Hey, Saul, how you doing? How's the wife and kids? How's the kingship going? And, you know, you know, Samuel, as far as we can tell, just abruptly says, what have you done? Now, was Samuel trying to figure out what Saul had done? <laughs> he already knew, so why does he ask Saul, what have you done? Wants Saul's explanation. Yes, he wants Saul to face up to what he'd done to to uh, deal with the seriousness of sin. You remember when when God did the same thing in the Garden of Eden? Even you know, God asked him questions not for information. You know, like where are you and uh, who told you that you were naked and and uh, what is this that you've done? Does the same thing with. Uh, uh, Cain, where is Abel your brother? I mean, it's not like God didn't know the answer to any of those questions. But he wants the sinner to acknowledge his sin. Taking responsibility for what we do wrong is a huge issue with God. And so he just says, what have you done? Now what does Saul say? It was your fault, it was the people's fault, and it was the Philistines' fault. Before he ever says anything about what he did, he wants to make sure we've got the blame properly distributed here. It wasn't me. You know, it's so funny. Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed day, and that the Philistines were simply, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down, and I've not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Wow. Wasn't that quite a statement? You know what that reminds me of? Just in everyday life. <coughs> that reminds me of a kid getting this, you know, hand caught in the cookie jar or something that way. You know, trying to get out of it. You know, every sinner can give reasons to justify his behavior. You know, he can make it to himself look like it was the only choice he had. You know, how could he be? He had to force himself into it because look at this and this and this. Wow. Why are we so bent on Shifting the blame and not taking responsibility for what we do. And the very idea that he thought that you could obtain God's favor 
by doing something God told him not to do. Do you disobey God so that God will bless you in the battle? But we have those ideas. You know, better to do something religious, even if it's wrong, because you want God to bless you. No, no, no. You always obey God. You always listen to what he says. And so Samuel said to Saul, well, Saul, you're, you're a good guy and all that. You just made a little mistake here. Isn't that what we'd say? Well, we would, it is amazing to me how much of the scriptures presents people of God speaking confrontationally. I mean, Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. I mean, he's just right out there, boom, boom, boom. You did the wrong thing. You acted foolishly, you didn't obey, and as a result of that, the kingdom is being taken away from you. Your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and he's going to be the ruler because you didn't obey. Saul is out to re be replaced by a player to be named later. But he's not going to continue as king. And the king God is going to select will be what kind of a man? Man after his own heart. Absolutely. A man chosen based upon God's own criteria, not based upon their demands and their desires. So we know what quality of man it will be, even though we don't yet know the identity of that man. Comments and questions? Yeah, Josh. I think it's interesting that you see God with Saul all the way through this process, empowering him to do what he needs to do, having Samuel there to encourage him what he needs to do, and continually he's reminded that God would have blessed him in this way if he had chosen to do the right thing. Um, and we see that God hadn't doomed him to failure. God was empowering him all along the way, and he continued to fall short. Good point. Other thoughts? As far as like the confrontational blunt sort of talk that we keep reading, how do we learn how to when that's an appropriate tactic, I guess? Because it seems like even among God's people, anytime someone's blunt and straightforward, even people who seem to have their life together will come to the aid of, you know, the bitter, rebellious one and say, now I might agree with them, but they were really wrong in how they said that. I mean, how do we use this? I mean, we've talked about it a lot today. Well, there's a lot of things we could say about that. I mean, when it's all said and done, our goal is to have the very same approach to people as the Lord does, as Jesus does, as those who follow God do. So our goal is to try to copy what we see in the Bible. Now when you start looking at the Bible, you start seeing how men were approached when they did wrong, and you start listening to some instructions, you see there is a balanced teaching. There are certainly times when Jesus didn't put out the smoldering wick, and he didn't, you know, crush the bruised reed, and he would be tender towards some people and patient 
And 2 Timothy 2 says the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be patient toward all with gentleness and meekness, trying to rescue those who are ensnared by the devil. There are statements that indicate that we need to be gentle in some situations and patient and kind and even examples that you could see with Jesus where he maybe didn't come down as strongly as we would think he might. And then all kinds of other examples where it was really strong, where it's very direct and confrontational. <clears throat> Jude 22 and 23, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 are two good passages that say that not everybody's in the same situation. You don't treat everybody the same way. Some people are weak and need strengthening. Some people are discouraged and need their spirits lifted. Some people are rebellious and they need yanked out of the fire. Some people are dangerous and you need to watch yourself that you're not contaminated, etc. So we've got to understand the nature of the person and try to apply biblical teaching. It's not that there's just one size fits all. But I think what we do have most in our culture is this idea that's so pervasive that everyone's okay and that the way you get people to do right is you just make them feel good about it. <laughs> that we've got to come up with ways of making people happy and making people feel good. Well, that, though, that's not the goal. That's not the right approach. There may be a time when somebody is in anguish over their sins, is truly repentant, really seeking the Lord, that what they need is to, for us to reaffirm our love for them and for us to really be tender and encouraging. But that time is not when you've got a Saul who when you ask him, what did you do? He says, well, it was their fault, their fault, and their fault, and I did okay. I mean, at that point, what can you do? He needs to be humble and he needs to face his sin. Samuel didn't say anything wrong. He said it right, but it was direct and probably not what Saul would have liked to have heard. So uh, there's a lot to say, Logan. Um, do we know how long Saul had been king at the point this time? We happened? don't. That depends a little bit maybe on verse 1. Yes? I think that shows the uh, wisdom of God showing so much importance on uh, unity uh, with God's family and, and with Christians and, and uh, showing uh, so much importance on like fellowship and being close together uh, with one another because you, you learn each other and you know how to deal with each other. So as far as discipline and rebuke and approaching somebody that, you know, if there is a problem, uh, you're able to know if you need to come in harshness or if you need to come in meekness um, with each individual person. But, you know, I want you to think about this. From the standpoint of being on the receiving end, you know, somebody's approaching you. Who is probably going to help you the most? The person who likes you so much and wants you to like them so much, they never really tell you what you need to hear. Or maybe the person who's not really very close to you at all who really tells you some things that are really painful and they do it kind of obnoxiously. That person who will listen to them will probably help us a whole lot more than the person who just flatters us too. I think probably one thing that helps is we need to stop gauging the right thing to do by how we expect the person to react. Um, 
the way somebody reacts to something doesn't mean anything about what was it? I mean, certainly you could do the wrong thing to react badly, but the reaction doesn't doesn't at all mean anything. Amen. You know, when do you see Jesus or Paul or whoever, Samuel or say, oh no, they rejected this. What did I do wrong? They never think that way. If somebody rejects the gospel, who did wrong? What the person who presented the gospel was the person who rejected it. I mean. We, we just have this knee-jerk reaction. You try to teach somebody and they don't respond properly. You try to correct somebody and they don't like it. Where did I go wrong? As if it's our responsibility to make them like it and respond positively. It is not. That is not the criteria. Why don't we ever say, oh, they liked it. What did I do wrong? <laughs> Maybe we ought to say that more often than the other. <laughs> you know, really? I mean, it's the false prophets that all men speak well of, according to Luke chapter 6. And woe to you when they do that with you. Maybe that's when we ought to be more worried. <coughs> Again, I understand there's balancing teachings. We need them all. But I do think more of us are influenced by our culture and maybe our just natural desire to be liked. And we tend not to confront. But think about it from the receiving end. If somebody tells you what you're doing wrong, and they got it right, but they weren't very nice about how they did it, what should you focus on? Well, they didn't say it very nice. <laughs> what should you focus on? They told me what I needed to hear. Proverbs is chock full of listen to rebuke and correction. We need it. And when we focus on, well, they could have been nicer about it. They didn't have to say it before that person. They didn't have to say it that way. Well, maybe they didn't. Nobody's perfect in how they give correction. But if I needed it, I needed it. You know, I mean, who gets, I mean, when it's all said and done, you know, who gets mad at the doctor who, who, who you know, he told you you had cancer, but he didn't break it to you quite the way you wanted to him to. I mean, you needed to know, especially if he tells you how you can fix it. You know, okay, so he's not got the best bedside manner. I'd much rather have a doctor who's very competent than one who's really nice and makes me feel good all the time. Wouldn't you? Yeah, Andrew. I was just going to say, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Yeah, Proverbs 27. Amen. Alita. Something I've learned in my many years of dealing with people is the very first thing to do is ask God to help you Amen. say the right thing in the right way that Amen. will be productive for him. And that's got to be our focus. Our focus is not us. And in many ways, it's not them. Our focus is the Lord. What's his will? What does he want? How can we honor him? That's really our goal. So, I mean, and, and, and the other thing I want to say is, I said this about three times already. I'm going to say it maybe three more times. Who knows? We just need to constantly be feeding on God's word to start shaping our thinking about what we say and when we say it and how we say it. The, the Bible is our guide. It's everything we know about what God wants. What, what everybody says and thinks and how we even feel about it doesn't matter. It's all, all what God says. The more we just are immersed in the word of God, 
to where we're just constantly thinking and acting based upon everything that the Bible says. And we're not just reading one passage or one chapter or one book. We want it all. And we're just constantly feeding on all of it and getting as much of it into our heart as we possibly can. That is the best way to do it right. Other thoughts? Well, thank you for listening to those things. And I really appreciate your really good concentration. I always do. I just uh, It always amazes me how people can sit for so long and listen. I don't think anybody has closed their eyes the whole time. Uh, it may be more difficult tomorrow. Uh, try to get some sleep tonight. I think that would be uh, appropriate, although I know some of you will want to stay up and talk some. I think we'll go ahead and close off here. We've got several things to do to finalize.